Good evening, everyone. My name is Andres Velasco. I am the Dean of the School of Public Policy here at the London School of Economics. And we are gathering, we're coming together this evening to help uh, launch and uh, present a new book by two of Britain's most eminent economists uh, and uh, public intellectuals, Paul Collier of Oxford University and John Kay, who has been in so many universities, I will not list them all, or I may in a minute or two. And we are also very lucky to have as a respondent and discussant and commentator, um, Camilla Cavendish, uh, whom I always also will introduce in some detail in a minute or two. The title of the book, Greed is Dead, Politics After Individualism, is certainly um, the kind of title that makes you want to read the book. The uh, subject matter could not be more topical, and therefore we are very honored, delighted that they have chosen the LSE as one of the venues to present and uh, discuss this book. Let me now um, introduce each one of our guests a bit more formally and, uh, and thoroughly. John Kay is one of Britain's leading economists, as I said. He's had many academic appointments, including uh, he was the inaugural dean of the Said Business School at Oxford. Aside from Oxford, he has also taught at LBS, at the LSE, and uh, for 20 years, he wrote a column at the Financial Times. He's the author of many books. I will not list them all, but my personal favorite is Obliquity. Paul Collier is professor of economics and public policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford, our competition, one might say. He is also a very prolific author, including the prize-winning book, The Bottom Billion, and last year's The Future of Capitalism. He was direct, uh, director sorry, of the Development Research Department at the World Bank, and he has advised governments around the world, primarily, but not exclusively, on the African continent. Camilla Cavendish, Baroness Cavendish of Little Venice, was the head of the uh, number 10 policy unit under Prime Minister David Cameron, and nowadays is a senior fellow at the Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. She also advises the UK government uh, on social care, and in particular, she advises the Department of Health and Social Care uh, of the British government. She also writes a column for the FT and is the author uh, of the book, Extra Time, 10 Lessons for an Aging World. The way we're going to do this is quite simple. We will ask the two authors uh, to take uh, 15 minutes or so to tell us about the main points and conclusions and messages of their book. Then we will hand it over to Camilla for remarks. Then we will uh, encourage a discussion between authors and uh, discussant. And aim, I, I may allow myself a question or two along the way. And toward the end, we will open it up to Q&A with the audience. John and Paul, the floor is all yours. Well, thanks very much. So I'm going to start us off. Um, and I want to start with that title, Greed is Dead. As you say, it's a captivating title. It's manifestly not true. We're living in a, 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 dec a few decades when we've seen 
a vast upsurge in greed. So what do we mean by it? We mean that not only has that upsurge in greed caused immense damage, which it has, not only is it ethically bankrupt, which it is, but it's intellectually false. It's based on premises which are just wrong. And so greed is now intellectually dead. And gradually, the reasons why it is intellectually dead will feed through into society. And so we are seeing peak greed. That is to say, they were at a point of the turning of the tide. So that's what the book is about, it's what it's aiming to do. It's aiming to turn the tide at peak greed. So uh, let me get going. Why did uh, we get this great upsurge in greed? And the answer is a very bad idea took hold in both the political right and the political left. And that was the upsurge of individualism. On the right, individualism took the form of this disgusting creature, economic man, which was invented by economists in about the 1950s and became pervasive from 1970 and especially 1980s. And economic man, is greedy, lazy, and selfish, and smart, varying degrees of smart, and nothing else. And so what you want, that the, what the only thing that can fuel capitalism, if we're all just greedy, lazy, and selfish, the only fuel must be greed. And so since capitalism is good, greed is good. The more you can harness greed, the better. If you can harness greed to smart, then you can create supermen. And those were the chief executives incentivized by vast rewards that incited their greed. And they knew best because they were so smart, they used information better than anybody else. The top knew best. So that was the big idea on the right. And boy, did it do a lot of damage which we recount in the book, and I haven't got time for now. But the key feature of that was economic man could not be morally load-bearing at all. By definition, greedy, lazy, selfish, there's no morality in economic man. So that was what was going on on the right. What were individual, what were people? What sort of people? People were consumers, but they were very bad workers because they were greedy, lazy, and selfish. So you had to monitor them like a hawk and link that monitoring to carrots and sticks. And so the top, that was how we ran our society increasingly, not just in the private sector, but it, it gradually infected the public sector. So those were the awful ideas on the right. And believe it or not, the left started to buy into them. The left had started from like ourselves, a very communitarian position of solidarity. But it, in that solidarity, the sense of obligations to others, gave way 
to a creature very like economic man. The obligations in society were all passed up to the state. And what was left was people very much as consumers. Um, and in addition to consuming goods, people had rights, not least rights to goods, rights as consumers. And so um, that was the increasingly the image on the left, the upsurge in rights showered down with all the obligations being pushed aside, pushed up to the only potential moral actor in the whole system, which was the state. It could only be moral if somewhere or other there were some saints around and they were parachuted in from the top with names like Gordon Brown. Um, so you've got saints at the top running this recalcitrant mob of economic men. Um, that was not just damaging, it was manifestly ethically disgusting. There was no role for anybody, either firms or families or communities to be morally load-bearing, to have purposes other than consumption. And so that total moral bankruptcy left a room for a new form of individualism, a pretty grotesque form, which was the upsurge in uh, emotive individualism, perf the, the performative emotism of the, uh, of the teenager with uh, tears and tantrums. I've got three teenagers. There are plenty of tears and tantrums amongst teenagers, but they became the moral currency for goodness in the absence of anything else. And so we got the emotions of teenagers as being the moral benchmark for public policy. That was the crazy scenario, very briefly before I pass on to John, why is it wrong? It's, so it's not just immoral and has damaging outcomes, but it is wrong and it's fundamentally wrong because the evidence from evolutionary biology is that we're not just greedy, lazy and selfish, we're much more than that, we're a very unusual mammal. We are a pro-social mammal. We've evolved to participate in communities, um, to have di dialogue within those communities, to reach agreement on common purposes, and then to sacrifice our own self-interest for the interest of the community. Uh, we forge common purposes and we try and meet them. That we are hardwired to find natural. It's the rise of individualism, which is systematically unpicked those natural instincts. On that note, let me pass over to John. Thanks, Paul. It's um, exactly 50 years since Milton Friedman wrote a notorious article in the New York Times magazine the date was September 12th, 1970, actually, which was entitled The Social Responsibility of Business is to Maximize Its Profits. And that was probably the most read article ever to have appeared in the New York Times, or the most cited article ever to have appeared in the New York Times. And it kind of set the scene for 50 years of greed and individualism 
that Paul has described. Greed not just in terms of the objectives of corporations being to maximize profits, but the rational economic men who were assumed to run these corporations needed to be incentivized uh, with appropriate rewards for increasing profits and above all for getting the stock priced up. I'd like to think that 50 years after that article, that world, or that the intellectual uh, content of that is coming to an end. There's another thing that happened in 1970, which was there was a general election in Britain. And I remember that election well, because I was then a student at Nuffield College in Oxford, and the BBC put on, as it always did, does a programme to uh, broadcast the election results. And it was chaired by Richard Dimbleby, uh, and the two pundits were uh, Bob McKenzie from LSE, who would jiggle a swingometer back and forwards through the evening, and David Butler from Oxford, who adopted a rather more cerebral approach to it all. And as a young student, I was part of the backup team for David Butler from the studio on that occasion. And I remember at about two in the morning, a news flash came in, uh, which said, Conservatives win Northwest Durham. And I knew that the Conservatives could not have won Northwest Durham. And I passed a note to David saying, we're checking on it. And I went across to the person responsible for putting up the kind of breaking news on the television stream and said, take that down, we're checking. And 10 minutes later, the news came through that Labour had retained Northwest Durham. Indeed, the Labour candidate had obtained 70% of the vote. The twist to that story, of course, is that in the 2019 election, the Conservatives did win Northwest Durham. That too is, I think, a marker of an era whose, which we need to review, but an era whose time has passed. Now, there are lots of people giving explanations of that 2019 election result. People talking about inequality, as they frequently do, uh, and there were issues to do with Corbyn's ineffectual leadership and to do with the polarization of the country by Brexit. But actually, I think we should understand that the Brexit vote was not the cause, but an underlying symptom. Because the truth is, if one takes Northwest Durham or many other constituencies, that shift has been going on steadily since 1970 election after election until the culmination of what people call the breaking of the Red Wall in 2019. Now let's look for a moment at Northwest Durham. Northwest Durham is not a particularly deprived constituency. Uh, House of Commons Library does a ranking of constituencies in the UK by de deprivation and um, Northwest Durham is 238 in that list. It's below the median, but it's not very far below the median. The most deprived constituencies in the country are actually Birmingham, Hodge Hill, and Liverpool, Walsall, which are in fact 
the two safest Labour seats in the country. And what, what we're seeing there and what we saw in that 2019 election is that the collapse in Labour support is not a feature of Labour's traditional strongholds in large cities in which their vote has held up, even increased. It's actually a phenomenon of town, formerly industrial towns, like Northwest Durham, which was um, the largest town in Northwest Durham, is in fact Consett, which was a steel town for a century, with the steelworks which closed in um, which closed in 1980. Um, what happened? We looked in the book at two other constituencies of similar kind, representative of these kind of seats that have steadily shifted from Labour to Conservative over a period of 50 years. Stoke-on-Trent North and Don Valley. Let me take these. Northwest Durham, as I've said, uh, was a steel town centered around the Concert Steelworks. Concert Steelworks closed. Uh, there are new businesses in Concert. Concert does not have uh, high unemployment and it doesn't have particularly uh, low uh, incomes. But the Concept Steelworks was nationalized, denationalized, renationalized, and then it closed as part of the program which slimmed down British Steel to make a company that could actually be, be, um, be privatized. Concept briefly gained fame for one new industry, which was the production of Phileas Fog, potato crisps, and snack products. That failed or didn't quite fail, it's still operating, but it was bought by United Biscuits, who mismanaged the, the product and the brand and lost market share. The largest industrial activity in concert at the moment is making camper vans, motorhomes, and uh, it was a company that was owned by some northern entrepreneurs. It was sold on to a German company, which in turn has sold itself on to an American company. It's now a governing effect from the United States. Stoke was, of course, the city of Arnold Bennett's five towns, the potteries. Uh, but production of ceramics has now basically moved from Europe to the Far East. The largest industrial activity in Stoke on the, at the moment is actually Bet365, which is an online gambling establishment. And its chief executive is Dennis Coates, who is not only one of the few female chief executives, but is also the best paid chief executive of any British company. Again, people in Stoke are employed they're not particularly badly off, but they're employed in very different ways. And the same is true of Don Valley, a traditional mining constituency. Again, lowish unemployment, not particularly deprived, but almost certainly the largest employer of people in Don Valley is um, the logistics industry. And in particular, South Doncaster is uh, the, the home to no less than four Amazon warehouses. What's happening in all of this? Well, I think the best description is that it's a combination of the decline of communities of work 
and of communities of place. And these things were bound up together. And it was well summarized, I think, in the day after the 2019 election by Peter Hayne, who'd been Labour Member of Parliament for Neath, another constituency of the kind I've been describing uh, for 25 years. And Haynes said, I've noticed how the whole base of the Labour Party has dissolved under our feet, as it were. The organic links between big trade unions in mines of heavy industry and so on, and then social clubs, welfare clubs, rugby clubs, and so on. That organic link of these community groups has basically just dissolved. That is what has happened across a large part of the country. And that is the issue which we believe we need to address. I'll pass back to Paul for some ideas about how it should be addressed. I think it's probably time to hear from, um, from Camilla, really. But um, yeah, I mean, one of the big features of the book is we have a positive agenda. Um, we are proposing <coughs> change, how to rebuild communities. So on that note, let me pass over to, to our commentator. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, look, I mean, this, this is a wonderful book. It's, it's really rich in ideas, and I can't possibly um, hope to deal with them all in a very short space of time. Um, it's also wonderfully scathing about a whole range of people. You know, it's scathing about left and right. Um, trade unions, businesses, I mean, nobody escapes. Um, and it, you're very even-handed in your critique, I think. And it's also, as you said, very, very optimistic, actually, about human beings being pro-social animals. Um, I did wonder, and you might want to come back to this afterwards, given what you were just saying there, about the role of religion. I mean, John, I wonder how much you thought that the decline of religion in some of the places you were talking about has played a role. I think liberals are incredibly reluctant ever to talk about faith at all. Um, the truth is that a lot of community activity is still based in faith groups. Uh, Robert Putnam in the States has certainly found that in his work. Um, so I'd be interested to know more what you think about the role of religion going forward especially given that in a funny way, I suppose, um, for some individuals, managing to break away from religion was a huge liberation, and that is a form of individualism. But what I wanted to talk about, if possible, was really how do we make your agenda happen? Because it's clearly the right time, whether or not we've hit peak greed, as Paul said, which I really hope we have. It, we've got a tremendous outpouring of neighbourliness from the coronavirus pandemic in the NHS we had 750,000 people volunteer who subsequently were annoyed because they never got the call to volunteer. One of the reasons they didn't get the call to volunteer was that all the neighbours and local communities had already sorted it out and they were already delivering food parcels and it's another classic example I think of one of your themes in the book which is that government and in this case, it was the Department of Health and the NHS together invented a volunteering scheme, which actually was superseded by the real social capital and the social fabric on the ground. And David Cameron ran into the same problem in 2010 when he launched and relaunched something called the Big Society, which was an attempt to do some of what you're talking about. Um, he was monstered by the Women Institute and other charitable groups who said, 
don't tell us how to do this, we're already doing it. So I think there's some really interesting questions there about how you make, how you rebuild community. And I think that the extreme individualism that you write so compellingly about is largely a phenomenon of the elite. Um, for my own book, I went <coughs> to the world interviewing people who had formed new types of communities, very often to look after each other as they age. And many of them, I, I called them actually the rebels against fate. Um, most of them are kind of guerrilla movements. I mean, these are ordinary middle class and working class people who have banded together against the forces you talk about, against the market, against the state very often. They're people who don't want to be done to. They actually want to look after each other. So if you go to Boston, if you go to Beacon Hill, which is a very fancy part of Boston, Massachusetts, they created something called Beacon Hill Village, which has spawned 150 other villages around the world. They basically decided they didn't want to be carted off to care homes or bossed around by social workers, and they created a neighborhood membership scheme, which has developed over time to the point where they really are looking out for each other. Um, and there are many, many other examples um, which I could cite, and many of these organizations have a sense of common purpose. And as I think you suggested earlier, I mean, they're based on place, they're based on locality, often quite small. One story I will just briefly tell you is about an organization in Holland called Butzorg, which started out as a rebellion by a nurse against the very um, top-down health system they have there, and is now looking after one million elderly people in their homes. And it's getting nurses to come out of retirement to work for it because they're so excited about being allowed to do something really simple, which is work in a self-organizing team where they decide how they're going to look after Mrs. Jones. And they do everything for Mrs. Jones. They don't divvy up the tasks by cost. Lo and behold, that organization has saved 30% of cost as opposed to similar organizations, and it has massive patient satisfaction. Now, the end of the story is simply this, which is that attempts to introduce that in the UK have essentially founded on the fact that the NHS cannot understand an organization where you give autonomy to your staff, where you have a very low overhead, and you don't have people constantly asking you to fill in forms and ringing you up, um, asking, you what to, asking you what you're doing. So I am very much brought into your principle in the book, which is of decentralization. I do think, and, and you have a very compelling explanation as to how we've ended up becoming so centralized, which I won't go into now, but I am very sure that you're right. We need to decentralize. And I think we need to remove barriers to the kind of groups I've talked about, because to be quite honest, I mean, it's incredibly difficult to set up what you would think is the obvious kind of mutual uh, organization. It's incredibly difficult to set that up because the armies of the state are largely against you. But I do wonder what sort of unit um, you class as a community. What is a community? In Britain, we think of decentralizing as giving power from central government to local government. Um, what we've seen in the coronavirus pandemic was that the Treasury gave about three billion pounds to local government to prop up care homes and home care agencies. Uh, local authorities had other ideas and were very reluctant to give that money to, to, to those care homes and ended up spending it on other things. Now, in one sense, 
um, that was a product of decentralization. In another sense, there was, there was really no accountability in the system. Um, obviously in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher was trying to shut down militant tendency and extremist groups which were using their local power bases. Um, I'm interested to know how you think we would mitigate, mitigate against that or whether it, maybe it doesn't matter because maybe the power of having those local decisions taken and a proper democracy locally, may, maybe that's more important, but I'm, I'm interested to know what you think about that. Um, if I can just mention two other things. Um, you were, as I said earlier, you were pretty hard on almost every institution apart from Amazon and the tech giants. Um, I was very, very struck in the book that I think, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think the only time Amazon appears is when you say, oh, it's got book reviewers who provide a marvelous community in reviewing books. I slightly wondered that. I'd be really interested to know what you think about Amazon. Is, is it a great community? Is it a great company? How does it rank against some of the other ones that you mentioned? You go into a lot of detail in the book about the pharmaceutical industry. And, and as well as talking about that, I'd love to know, John, how do we build better business? You know, I spent part of my time in number 10 Downing Street um, bringing in the sugar tax on fizzy drinks, um, heavily lobbied by the food and drink industry, particularly the Americans, um, who absolutely, in my view, now believe that pushing incredibly unhealthy products on our children is their business and they have absolutely no interest whatever in the social good. How do we ever come back from that? Um, I'd be really, really interested to know. That's a wonderful literal interpretation of greed is good, isn't it? Um, uh, yes. <laughs> the, um, let, let me start us off. I'm going to leave Amazon and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the rebuilding business to John, but let me start off with just some of your earlier points. Um, you, we, you're quite right. The rise of individualism is something that happened in the elite, not amongst ordinary people. And the, the, the elite not only decided that it was, uh, it was, uh, it, its purpose in life was its own success, um, but it then decided that it actually shed all obligations to anybody else. It peeled off from shared identity with the people who actually needed uh, its help, the people who were going on the down escalator um, in places like Stoke and Don Valley, who needed these hyper successful people and they walked away from their obligations. Of course, they added insult to injury by claiming to have the model high ground. Um, that really was insult to injury. Um, but let me turn next to your point about um, religion. And um, religion isn't, is one route to transcending me and now. There are other ways of transcending me and now. Um, but that's what religion does. And basically anything that builds common purpose gets, gets me out of just me. And anything that is forward looking common purpose gets me out of now. And so that process of building forward looking common purpose is the way that we transcend me now. And all of us looking for purpose larger than me now want that transcendental experience, whether it's from religion or, um, or secular activity that achieves that same escape from just me now. Um, 
you gave the example of spontaneous good neighborliness in Britain and the volunteering. Mm. Um, let me contrast that, which was happening, what was happening across the pond. And in America, did you see a big uprising in neighborliness? What you saw with the onset of COVID was queues outside gun shops. <laughs> it wasn't exactly love your neighbor, it was more shoot your neighbor. Right? I get safety by shooting people. Well, of course, it doesn't work. America's had the biggest upsurge in uh, excess deaths of anywhere, right? even worse than us. Right? So um, that turn to selfishness, um, although neighborliness is natural, the great upsurge in individualism, which in America exceeded everywhere else, um, managed to suppress those natural instincts. Finally, let me turn to the really good question. Um, what do we do? How do, how do we actually rebuild, restore um, a sense of place and common purpose? And where does devolution fit in that? Where should we push power down? Mm. And the answer is, um, the answer is, it should be, the, the basic principle is exactly what the British government taught and preached uh, in Europe, subsidiarity. <laughs> you push, the, the default option for a decision is push it down. Push it down to the people who have the experience of place, context, now, you know, the, the, the current situation, because everything is context specific. And so push decisions down, but quite often some decisions need to be taken at a much higher level. We need to cooperate and collaborate. And Eleanor Ostrom, the great Nobel Prize winner, got this right. Multi-level governance. Push power down, that's the default option, but be ready depending on what the problem is, to be able to collaborate at much higher levels. And so a flexible system right, with a presumption of collaboration. Um, how do you do that? How does devolution help that? Um, two ways. One is it pushes the power of decision down to where the practitioner knowledge is. It's much easier to push expert knowledge down. It's naturally shareable than it is the knowledge of experience up. But the, the final reason, you almost gave yourself. Um, once you push power down, people have an incentive to engage ordinary people because the distance between them and power is much shorter. If all the power is in Whitehall, then who has short distances of power basically just the people living in North London, right? The chattering class, the elite, and everybody else doesn't bother to engage, they're excluded. So um, on that note, um, let me pass Amazon uh, and business over to John. Let me pick up, first of all, uh, your point about the elite, Paul and Camilla. Uh, because that's very relevant to understanding the dynamics of uh, the process of social change and political change I was describing. Part of it is Michael Young, who 
wrote the 1945 Labour Party manifesto and 20 years later wrote The Rise of the Meritocracy. And a lot of people don't know now that The Rise of the Meritocracy was a description of a dystopia. It wasn't a description of a desirable end state. And Young wrote 30 years after that, uh, a summing up of what he'd said, which is to say that in a meritocracy, people, people to be told they're without merit, no underclass has ever been left so morally naked as that. Mm. Now, part of what is happening here is I think we didn't fully understand the implications of what seemed obviously desirable to move to a world in which half the population went to universities. But of course, what that meant was that most of the academically abler and more aspirational kids who lived in Don Valley and Northwest Durham and Stoke went off at the age of 18 to go to university somewhere else. And most they they never came back. And we didn't really understand and may not yet have understood the implications of that for the communities that they left behind. So understanding that a large part of this is about meritocracy and elite, and a large part of what we're seeing in Brexit and this voting behaviour is a widespread resentment of people like us, professionals, journalists, professors, etc., now let me turn to, to business. You were right, Camilla, we don't say much in the book about Amazon. Uh, actually, we don't say very much about the, the new tech giants. Yeah, yeah. And Amazon is a bit of an outlier among the tech giants because unlike the others, Amazon actually employs a lot of people. But most of the people it, it employs are actually in these routine and rather dull, though now somewhat better paid, jobs and warehouses or fulfillment centers as they call them. Uh, the people, a lot of the people in Don Valley are working in these kind of places. I'm afraid these are jobs that are gonna be replaced by robots within a decade or so. And indeed much of the logistics operation, uh, which is a large part of Amazon's business will become more technologically advanced and will employ fewer people uh, probably within a decade, certainly uh, within a relatively short time. Now, Amazon, it's, it's very difficult to say whether Amazon fulfillment centers are communities or not. Amazon is a, is a business in Seattle, plainly is, as Mountain View and Cupertino and the other headquarters of these high-tech businesses are. Um, some people find working in Amazon warehouses uh, a job that generates a kind of camaraderie which they like. A lot of people working in these places hate it. But these are communities of a kind that are unusual and on the way out. What communities have to be is about business organizations that realize that they will only survive in the long run by actually giving satisfying employment to people in the odd way that the ceramics and the mining and the steel, awful though these many of these jobs were, did give people some pride in the work they were doing, the output of it and the solidarity. That's one part of what we need to do. And at the same time, 
we need to rid ourselves of the ideas which were in that uh, 1970 Friedman article, that the purpose of the, the social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits. The purpose and the social responsibility of business is to provide goods and services that people want to buy, to provide satisfying employment to the people who work there, to pay its share of taxes in the communities in which it operates. And these are the hallmarks uh, of a good business. And we need to say that again and again and reward only the business people who actually espouse these kinds of objectives. Thank you so much, John and Paul and Camilla. Um, I'm going to allow myself to interject one question and then we will open it up to Q&A from, from the audience. Um, the discussion has been largely about the UK um, with the one exception of, uh, of Amazon. But this is of course a, wor a wide world phenomenon. The UK is far from alone. This did not come into being because of Margaret Thatcher or, or Tony Blair. And in fact, for countries like the United States, it was documented a long time ago by people like Bob, uh, Putnam, who wrote his famous book, Bowling Alone. Putnam, of course, teaches at the Kennedy School, just like Camilla does. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that these seem to be slow-moving cultural tectonic plates that have something to do with technology. Putnam pointed out that we join lots of organizations where we can do it online or at a distance, but we don't go bowling with friends so that we can see them up close. It has to do with mobility of labor, it has to do with migration. Um, and as a result, might it not be that uh, rekindling that sense of community will take a lot more than simple devolution? Might it not be more than a matter of policy and that policymakers have very few levers with which to, uh, to change these long moving uh, and very difficult to change trends? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, and the counter evidence to that is Germany. Um, uh, we've had a sad increase in loneliness and bowling alone over the last 30, 40 years uh, in America and Britain. In Germany, over that same period, there's been a huge increase in bowling together. The uh, entity's called Verein, a massive increase. Uh, so now about half of all Germans are in these clubs, associations, um, for whatever common purpose it is, you know. Um, sometimes it's sport, sometimes it's something that contributes to the whole community. Um, why is it that Germany has managed to get this reduction in loneliness at the same time as Britain and America have had an increase. That's because of differences in public policy. So these are not just tectonic cultural plates that are moving around all over the world. These are responses to divergence in policy. So Germany has done two things that have made a huge difference. One is it's, um, push down money and roles and functions to these clubs. It's given them a role in society. It's given them money. And the other is it's devolved. In fact, it's never centralized power. 
Germany is a federal system that's naturally devolved to cities and states, both of them, both of them. And so you get the um, strong sense of local community because the power is devolved, there's an incentive for people to participate. I went back to the, the town from where my, my grandfather left uh, in the 1880s, um, Stuttgart. And I was struck by the pride with which local business people welcomed me and showed me this. And I was speaking in a huge community hall which had been paid for by the local business community and then handed to the city council, which was then running it. And the place was packed with people rooting for Stuttgart. They didn't all wish they were in Berlin. They were proud of what they were doing in Stuttgart. The same in Hamburg, the same in Munich. You know? So all around, the same in Frankfurt. Um, you can have a sense of purpose and pride in your locality, but it does require people to have some power and some financing. I would just make one other point on that, Andres, which I think governments sometimes just need to get out of the way. So if you go to Japan, there are some fantastic things called silver centers, which are now in every part of Japan. And they help older people find part-time work. And the oldest person I found was actually 103, still looking after a historic building. And that is an extraordinary community. That was opposed by the Japanese government, staunchly, staunchly opposed when it was started by a Tokyo professor and some of his chums. And it has taken years and years and years for them to get access to buildings and small amounts of money. I think governments very often worry that they're going to be asked for enormous amounts of money. Very often, communi building community does not actually take money. And I think we need to decouple the two things. I think this is a fascinating debate, uh, and I'm sure there's plenty of empirical evidence out there. You know, you've mentioned a couple of countries, Japan and Germany, which are very communitarian. One could probably mention half a dozen which are not. I hail from Latin America, and many of the same trends you see in the UK and the US are visible in Brazil, in Mexico, in Peru, in Chile. But um, let us open it up, the conversation, to, uh, um, to the audience. We have plenty of questions from many countries uh, in the world and cities in the UK. Let me begin with this one, which is in fact very much related to the discussion we've been having. Max, who's a PPE student at the LSE, says, there are studies that point to a link between individualism on the one hand and a society's level of heterogeneity. How can we recreate a communitarian regard for reciprocity in societies that are so diverse? Is that a feasible enterprise or is it not? Great question, I think. John, Paul, Camilla, anybody? Um, we can have an inclusive community. Eh? The enemy of community is actually, um, we naturally belong to group identities. It's oppositional identities that are the enemy of community. And so, um, we're all naturally diverse. I mean, you know, most obviously, look at men and women, right? Um, but men and women uh, have discovered that, yes, in some contexts we're oppositional, but overall, we're collaborative. And if we hadn't been collaborative, we'd have died out, right? There is common purpose between men and women. Uh, and so 
So diversity is a strength as long as you build some higher level of common belonging. Um, and the enemy of that is this claim by some group, subgroup that says where the nation or where the community and you're not. So uh, um, a very good example of, of being able to do that was Tanzania. Tanzania, 50 different tribal groups. And President Nyerere, who's one of my sort of great heroes, the first president of Tanzania, built a discourse of we, whatever else we are, first and foremost, we're all Tanzanians. And we know from detailed subsequent research that doing that for 30 or 40 years worked. Tanzanians think of themselves as Tanzanian first, and so they can cooperate. Across the border in Kenya, they think of themselves first and foremost as Kikuyu, Luo, whatever, and in the village level, they can't cooperate. Um, the wells work in multi-ethnic villages in Tanzania. They get neglected and become dysfunctional uh, across the border in Kenya. So again, public policy can create community in diverse societies. Um, uh, the same happened in Singapore. It's what leaders, you know, leaders can build community or they can destroy it. And we can think of some leaders who are hell bent on destroying it, building those oppositional identities. I mean, as humans, we're naturally both competitive and cooperative. And successful societies are essentially the, the, the societies that uh, achieve the best of both these characteristics. And unsuccessful societies are ones where the, um, where the cooperation is essentially funneled into competition with destructive competition with other groups. And managing that balance between cooperation and competition is the key task of the politician and the institution builder, and indeed the business person. Indeed, countries um, are imagined communities. Um, it's the title of a very famous book by Benedict Anderson. I suppose that what great political leaders do is they help imagine and, uh, and develop those communities. Let me turn now to a question by Gabrielle, who is um, in IT. And she says, what role do you see technology in the, and the internet playing in the decline of these communities? Because the internet offers a virtual alternative to the physical and local communities of the past. Well, to date, um, the uh, social media has, on the whole had a pretty negative effect because two things. One is the tech companies have discovered that the way to retain audience on the screen, and in the end, their business model is they're selling adverts, so they need to get screen time. They discovered that they retain people on the screen by tempting people to more and more extreme things. And so the tech companies are pushing people into polarized positions. And on top of that, we get the equivalent of a sortative mating. People join those groups that they agree with. And so we get the echo chamber phenomenon. 
the genius of place-based communities is we're all mixed up. And so you get diverse opinions naturally in the context of community, but because we're neighbors, we're courteous to each other on the whole. And so we're able to have dialogue around difference rather than screaming fits and tantrums, which is what we get on social media. Maybe it doesn't have to be like that. Mm -hmm. I, I think technology works both ways. So if you look at um, the Nextdoor app on WhatsApp, um, which has now become phenomenally powerful, actually that is playing a role, I think, in building trust mm -hmm. in neighbourhoods. And yes, people aren't necessarily seeing each other on the street, but they are actually able within a kind of closed community to ask advice, you know, give support, hear about burglaries. And sometimes that translates into genuine face-to-face -face meetings. So on my local one recently, we had some discussion about helping older people. And actually somebody said, well, why don't we create a meeting in the cafe every Thursday at 12? And, and you can, I think, begin to translate the positive technological interactions into the physical interactions that you want to see. I think there's a key point there, and we're engaged in a very interesting experiment at the moment that we have a great many businesses which are working working from home online and we'll, we will see how anxious people are to get back to work and we will also see whether it's possible for people to work virtually with each other if they haven't also previously had the experience of working physically with each other and I suspect it's only the fact that it's preceded by the physical interaction that has made the virtual working we've seen so much of possible. Thank you very much. I think we may have time for perhaps one more question. Let me try this one from Matthew, who's actually an economics A-level student in London. He says that you've been critical of the elites and you've been critical of those at the top. But then you tell us that uh, it is their job to bring their knowledge and skills down to communities, to push down knowledge, as, as Professor Collier put it. How do you propose to incentivize these selfish and arrogant elites to do that sort of thing? Good question. Votes. Votes. Huh? Um, what we just witnessed, certainly in Britain, was a mutiny against that self-serving elite. There's a block of um, Red Wall MPs, about 50 of them, from constituencies that want change. And um, no matter what Boris Johnson wants, he's no choice. He's going to have to meet those aspirations. There are 50 members of parliament sitting there. They hold the balance of power if the elite doesn't devolve power to local communities, then it will fail in the purpose of the famous purpose of leveling up. And so there's the pressure point. Thank goodness we're in a democracy and in the end, people have spoken. Um, uh, Andres, since that's probably the last chance for me to speak, let me go back to my point that we are at peak greed. Last week, I believe your previous speaker was Michael Sandel, yes. um, the tyranny of merit. Mm -hmm. And he is like us, critiquing that elite peeling off into self-satisfied um, meritocracy. And 
the two of us, our book and Michael's book, there's a, both evidence of the turning of the intellectual tide. Greed is intellectually dead. You're absolutely right, Paul. We've had two sets of communitarians speak uh, in two consecutive weeks. Maybe we'll have to get some balance uh, in, in the coming weeks. Uh, but it's been fascinating and very thought-provoking. We're out of time, but I do not want to end uh, this session before giving both Camilla and John maybe just a minute each to um, share the last thoughts with us. Why don't we start with John, and then we'll hand it over to Camilla for the last words of wisdom. John, please. I, th I, th I think I would finish by echoing what Paul has just said, which uh, is there are so many ways in which there is now a revolt against the intellectual tide of that last 50 years. And what we are trying to do is to give it a little push further on. And all of us, everyone on this, um, on this call, actually need to think about what they can do at their community level in both communities of place and communities of work uh, to push this agenda uh, forward. I suppose I would go back to um, the Northwest Durham example that, that we started with and, and say that Brexit was obviously partly a shout against the global elite. And actually, we haven't talked about it, but in the book, you talk about global salvationism, you know, the idea that, that helping somebody in Bangladesh was, was equivalent to helping someone down the road um, in Teesside and, and that kind of broad coalition of the establishment. Um, you do say in the book that that, that politics has become too extreme and that broad coalitions are a good thing. The irony, I think, is that we had a broad coalition for a long, long time, which didn't listen to exactly the kind of community concerns you're talking about. So I think we have to move possibly to slightly different conception of politics. And yes, we need to be more inclusive, but we also have to heed that sense of place and community and understand why did it fall out of political discourse for so long. And I think the last thing I'd say is, I just think we're all a bit too fatalistic. Um, John, you talked about automation being inevitable. I mean, surely part of this is not being fatalistic about globalization, not being fatalistic that the tech giants don't pay taxes and not being fatalistic about automation, and maybe thinking, what are we going to stand up to? Thank you, Camilla, for that last um, non-fatalistic, optimistic thought. These are absolutely fascinating subjects. We could uh, probably go on and argue all night, but uh, regrettably, we are out of time. I want to thank Paul Collier, John Kay, and Camilla Cavendish once again for uh, joining us uh, for this session. And I suppose, given that we're helping launch a book, we can always invite people to go out and read the book. Um, John, Paul, Camilla, many, many thanks to everybody who's joined us tonight from many countries and many latitudes. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>